Well, good morning. Uh, we are picking up again in our study of Mark together. We are closing out Mark chapter 9, uh, which is printed for you in your worship folder. Uh, before I read our text for us, let me go ahead and just uh, offer a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to hear from you uh, in your word. Father, we thank you for sending your son. Spirit, we thank you for applying his work to our hearts. We pray now you'll make us good students of this inerrant word. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to go ahead and read our text for us. And just a little bit of a spoiler here, uh, our text is all about sin this morning. So we're going to be talking about sin. And Jesus uses some um, somewhat grotesque imagery here or some maybe offensive imagery to our sensibilities as he discusses and unpacks sin for us. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and pick up your worship folder or follow along in your copy of God's Word, I'm going to jump in here, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Uh, and as we jump into this text, I want us to remember that this is a continuation of a conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. Uh, Josh preached on this last week, and there's a conversation about who's the greatest, and, and then also Jesus sort of highlighting um, children in this conversation as well. It's going to be an important piece because as we pick it up, he's going to reference children again. But the conversation continues between Jesus and his disciples, and he says this, "'Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off.'" It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another." So here we have Jesus uh, essentially using the imagery of amputating one's own hands, feet, or gouging out one's own eye in reference to sin. It made me think about a show that Hillary and I have watched recently, a BBC show uh, about an, a, a medical hospital, or um, I guess it's actually a military medical hospital at the front in World War I in France. Uh, and there's just, there's a lot of amputations that were taking place. And it made me wonder, I mean, statistically, what was happening in World War I, how many amputations were taking place. And it's estimated that over 40,000 amputations were performed on British soldiers in World War I, and over 60,000 were performed on German soldiers in World War I. So over 100,000 amputations in a handful of years, whether it was at the front or once they were sent home uh, or to a hospital back in the city. And these amputations were necessary it was essentially a decision like, your life will be saved, but the only way your life is going to be saved is to sever this appendage because of the infection. And a lot of the amputations came because of what's called trench foot, where men were just walking around and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't perform good hygiene for their feet, so their feet were just damp and never drying, becoming infected and becoming so infected that they actually had to have their feet amputated. Uh, and it was hard for these men to, to live the rest of their life. They lived the rest of their life uh, with these amputations. For the world to see. They had to, uh, they had to assimilate new norms to live with the scars of these amputations. And Jesus is using this kind of shocking imagery here, this idea of severing off or gouging out uh, appendages and eyes because he's shaking his disciples up. He's like, he's telling them, 
I view sin very seriously, and you need to view sin very seriously. And so he uses this kind of shock imagery for them. And what I want us to look at this morning is sort of asking the question, why does Jesus care if we take our sins seriously? And the, the answer to that is he shows us here in this text. Jesus wants us to take sin seriously because he cares about us. He cares about me and he cares about you individually. And because he cares about us and our lives, he wants us to deal with sin seriously, to treat it seriously. But he also, wants, he also cares about everybody else in this world, everyone that you and I come in contact with. So because he cares about us and because he cares about everybody else, he calls his followers to take their sins seriously. Uh, so first let's talk about the, the call of Jesus here to take our sins seriously because he loves us. Looking at verses 43 through 48, we have this imagery. This is where we get the imagery of these amputations and the gouging out of eyes. And Jesus frames that in this kind of forever language. It's like, better for you to enter life with one hand or one foot. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. He's saying, better for your forever that sin is dealt with now than for you to go and spend forever being the one who has to deal with your own sin and judgment. And so we have Jesus essentially sharing with his disciples that he cares about their forever. And he's helping them understand the, the reality of unrepentant sin, like unrepentant sin that hangs out in our life, whether we want to ignore it or whether we're letting it happily exist in our life. It's a lordship issue. It's him saying, hey, it's Jesus saying, if you're letting these things hang out in your life, then you are actually not living under my lordship in these areas. You're saying, Jesus, you're great, but you're not great enough for me to submit these things to you, to subject these things to you, to risk the consequences of these things to follow you. It's a lordship issue. It's not Jesus saying, hey, you need to be sinless because only if you're sinless will you get to go into heaven. That's not what he's saying. No, what he's doing is he's highlighting for his disciples. He's saying, if you actually have me as your Lord, if you actually have me as your Savior, if you actually want a close relationship with me, you're going to grow to hate your sin. We don't hate our sin so that we'll be loved by Jesus. We hate our sin because we know that we're loved by Jesus. So Jesus is showing us, like, hey, this is the evidence. This is the evidence in your life that you've actually submitted your life to me. It's the evidence is that you're actually going to deal with your sin and you're going to grow to hate it. So it's actually a sign of health when we grow to hate our sin. It's a natural, natural outworking of our salvation. And Jesus wants that for us because he cares about our, our, our life, our eternal life. But he also cares about our life right here and right now. He wants us to see that the life we lead right now actually has eternal implications. He wants us to see that this life actually matters and he cares about this life as well. And so we know that Jesus cares about our forever, but he also shows us that he cares about our here and now. And what I want us to see here is Jesus wants us free to live with him forever, but he wants us free right now to live with him from now until forever. It's not just about, you know, at the, before the judgment throne, but it also impacts living here and now. Jesus in, in John 8, 34, he taught this. He said, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Meaning that Jesus is saying there, like, if you are engaged in sin, that sin is enslaving you. You are not free when that sin is taking up residence and has put a root down in your life. Your freedom will come from eradicating that sin. That's the only way that you're going to experience freedom. And so Jesus cares about here and now freedom for his followers. So it's not this sense where Jesus says, all right, I want you to walk the straight and narrow, deny yourself now so you can have the good life later. 
No, he's saying, I care about your life then, but I also care about your life now. And the things that are enslaving you now can affect your forever, but they're also affecting right now. And Jesus cares about right now. Jesus knows what we know experientially, and that is that sin makes a train wreck of everything. Sin makes a train wreck of all of our lives. Sin makes a train wreck of our relationships. It makes a train wreck of our finances. It makes a, a train wreck of our communities. Like, sin takes effect, and as sin is, is not dealt with in our lives and in our hearts, it actually affects, it permeates out and affects everything. And our life just bears the marks of it, and it's marks of enslavement. It is not marks of freedom and flourishing. And so Jesus is calling us here to protect our freedom. Like when he tells us to deal seriously with our sin, it's not because he wants us under his thumb. It's because he actually wants us free. He wants us to, be, to have that slavery broken. And I want us to spend just a few minutes here just kind of diving into how Jesus calls us to drastically kill our sin. How to drastically deal with our sin. Uh, I watched this movie probably a few years ago. I talk about movies a lot. I wish that I read more, um, but since I don't, I have to talk about movies, so don't judge me. Uh, but with this particular movie, it came out 10 years ago, and I'm about to completely spoil it for you. And I want you to know, that's on you. You've had 10 years. 10 years to watch it, zero personal responsibility. All right, the movie's called 127 Hours. It's a story of uh, a young man, a true story of a young man who went out um, to go, he's a hiker, climber, outdoor adventurer, so he's going on a scrambling hiking trip by himself, a solo trip, uh, and he goes back into this ravine. It's in, the, um, it's in the southwest of our country, one of the national parks there, I think. Uh, and he's in this ravine, and as he's scrambling through the ravine, a boulder falls, and it pins his arm. Uh, and he's, he's screaming for help, he's crying for help, and no one can hear him. I mean, he's, he's isolated for 127 hours. He's pinned under this rock, and the story, as the story progresses, he realizes the only way that he's going to survive is if he cuts off his own arm. And so he does. He slowly cuts off his own arm. Then he takes the stub and he wraps it in material and he hikes eight miles until he finds other hikers who then get him connected with rangers, who get him connected with paramedics that take him to the hospital. And so his life is saved because he was willing to cut off his own arm. Jesus is using that kind of imagery here when he calls us to deal with our sin. Because the only way that we'll actually know that we take sin seriously is if we deal with sin seriously. We can say all we want that we hate sin, but you only know it when you actually deal with it drastically. When we, when we, do, when we actually go about killing what wants to kill us. Uh, there's a quote from John Owen. Uh, he, he says this many, many, many years ago. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Like it's just a battle. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And we want to talk about killing sin. And to quote one commentator, he said this, what Jesus is calling us to in this, this kind of shocking, uncomfortable, descriptive language, Jesus is calling, what he's calling for us, um, let me try, start that again. What Jesus is calling for is not physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification. The cutting off of harmful practices from one's life. The hand, foot, and eye encompass the totality of life. The hand symbolizes what we do, the foot, where we go, the eye, what we see. So the point here is Jesus is saying, in all the areas of your life, in all the arenas of your life, in every aspect of your life, you need to be fighting sin. You mean, need to be eradicating sin. You need to be dealing drastically with your sin. And as we think about this idea 
It'd be real simple for us to be like, yeah, Jesus doesn't want me to actually cut off my hand or foot. There are stories told of bygone eras when um, monks and others took these kind of drastic measures. I don't know if those things are true or if they're just old tales that are passed down, but I do know that that isn't the point that Jesus is making. The point that he's making is dealing spiritually with a spiritual issue. But he is using this very descriptive language, and I don't want us to see, yeah, Jesus is saying, I got to really hate my sin, and, and I do. And we leave it ethereal like that. No, we need to make it practical. Jesus uses some very visceral language so that we will feel what he's calling us to feel. And I want us to take this idea that Jesus shares with us and just look at three aspects of it. Like, what should we expect if we deal drastically with our sin? Well, the first thing I want us to note is you cut off your hand, or if you cut off your foot, or you gouge out your eye, it's going to hurt. A killing sin is going to hurt. If you feel like, if you think that dealing with your sin is actually going to be this smooth experience and, and it's just going to, it's going to do, sort of trip along so nicely that, yeah, I want to be, I hate this, so now I'm going to get it out of my life and it'll be that easy. No, it won't. There's going to be a cutting and a ripping that takes place and it is going to hurt. So if you and I go into dealing with our sin and we don't actually go in with our eyes wide open realizing this is going to hurt, we're going to give up when it starts to hurt and we can't. We're called to actually eradicate it. It will hurt, but we'll be healthier on the other side. To leave it will only damage us. So that's one aspect. If we're going to actually deal with our sin, we need to expect it's going to hurt. A second aspect is it's also going to leave our life altered. You don't cut off a foot and then expect another foot to grow back. We're not like lizards where you pull off our tail and another tail comes. It's not like that. You and I, if we cut off a foot, and Jesus is using this imagery intentionally, if you cut off your foot, you're now one-footed. You're now, you now have one hand. You have a single eye. Your life is going to be changed. You're going to be living in a different way, and you're going to feel the tension of it. You're going to feel what you cut off. It's not something you may slowly over time acclimate and become more normal, become more normal for you. But you need to anticipate that it's going to be a felt loss. It's going to be a felt experience in that way. Uh, there's a, a man who was the leader of our college ministry when I was at James Madison University up in Virginia back in the early 2000s. Uh, and I was 19 at the time. I was in his small group, and he was probably in his late 20s, early 30s, single guy. Um, and we were over at his house for Bible study one evening, and one of us, I think, wanted to check and see what time a movie was showing or something, so we just wanted to jump on his computer. And he just told us, he's like, actually, I don't have the internet um, in my house. He's like, I just, I just know that I, I actually won't use it for, for good and right and pure reasons. Like, I would do inappropriate things if I had the internet, and so I just don't have it in my house. I check my email at the computer lab on campus. I remember as a 19-year-old being like, that is a lot that you have just shared with me. A lot that I just wonder, like, did you know what you just said to me? Because I heard it. I wonder if you heard yourself say it. And now I'm almost 40, and I realize, like, that was just a, that was a, a moment of incredible bravery on that man's part. To show me, he's like, I had to cut a hand off so I could follow Jesus. And it's okay if you see it. I cut it off. And instead of me receiving it the way that I should have and just been challenged by what a faithful follower of Jesus he was, instead I was like, ooh, he must have serious issues as if I had total purity in the way that I use my computer in my room at my apartment as a 19-year-old. Like he challenged me in a good way that I didn't even realize until years later. But that's the third aspect that I want us to see. People will see the scars when we deal with our sin. We can't hide them from people. People will know if you've cut off your foot. 
They will know if you've cut off your hand. They will know if you've gouged out your eyes. People will know when you and I have taken drastic measures to deal with our sin. And we are so afraid of that, that we let fear of what people will think of us determine whether or not we will do what is healthy and what will bring freedom to us. And so we hide our sin and we try and manage our sin and we don't actually deal with it and eradicate it and it eats us up from the inside out. The imagery that Jesus uses here is incredibly uncomfortable because he understands sin and he wants us to understand sin. We have to cut it off. And we need to be a place, a people. This is one of the struggles that we can actually address as a family, as a church family. A church family should be a place when you gather, not just at worship, but just together, where people see the scars of dealing with sin. Where when we see someone who had to cut off their hand figuratively or cut off their foot figuratively or gouge out their eyes, instead of making them feel ashamed as if, well, at least I don't have that much sin, actually celebrating that they follow Jesus so faithfully, that they love Jesus so much, to express how challenged we feel because we know there's areas we need to do the same. Like we should be a joyful group of people who walk around with a limp and have to shake people left-handed and have bad peripheral vision on the left side. Like that's what we should be. Like that should be the experience of being a part of the people of God, where you come in and the week after you just did something drastic to deal with your sin, you come fearing shame and all you find is love and support because we all celebrate when the Spirit leads us to do what needs to be done to deal with our sin. We need to be that kind of family for one another. And as we become that kind of family, we'll we'll see and encourage one another to deal drastically with our sin. And we're running out of time, so I have to move really quickly here. But the, how do you do it? So that's what you should expect. How do you do it? How do you actually amputate or gouge out what needs to be amputated or gouged out? Simply repentance. Repentance is when you actually speak the words, you actually repent and you call out what you've done as sin, and you tell other people about it in your confession. And then you take steps to sever your your connection to it. You take actual steps. Repentance is not repentance if we don't turn from what we have declared. If I say "That that was sinful, I repent of it, then I need to actually do an action that prevents it from staying connected to me. There has to be an action. And it could be any number of things. And if we think about it, it needs to be practical. So it could be, it could be something like this friend of mine who decided they couldn't have internet in their home. Or they need to have an accountability software on their computer or on their cell phone. Or maybe they realize they can't actually have a smartphone at all. Or maybe social media is something you need to disconnect from. Or maybe you can't trust yourself to have a single political conversation with anyone. Maybe you can't trust yourself to actually go to that gathering because all you ever want to do is gossip when you're around those same people and you have to sever that. And so you can only hang out with that group of people one-on-one, never one with five. Maybe it's that you have to actually stop pulling into your driveway. You got to fill your driveway up with, I mean, fill up your, your garage with something so you have to park someplace where you actually see other human beings before you walk into your house. Maybe you have to move your lawn furniture to the front yard instead of having the backyard. I don't know what it is, but if there are things that need to be eradicated from our lives, then we have to take steps to eradicate it. We have to cut it out because it's enslaving us, and we'll fall back into it if we just say it was wrong, but don't sever the relationship with it. And so Jesus calls us to true repentance, which is voicing and turning. And the last thing I want us to see this morning is why does Jesus care if we deal with sin? He wants you and I to be free. He wants us to be free forever, but especially he wants us to be free right now 
into forever because he cares about us, but he also cares about every single person that we come into contact with. We see it at the beginning of this text when he talks about these little ones. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for them if the great millstone were tied around their neck and they were cast into the sea. That's another intense image. Another movie that I've watched recently, Midway, the remake of Midway, uh, in that there's a scene in it where there's an American sailor uh, who's been taken captive and he's on a, a Japanese ship and the, the admiral of that Japanese ship binds his hands, ties, ties him to an anchor and throws the anchor over and the man plunges in and drowns in the Pacific Ocean. It's this visceral, awful moment that you witness in that movie. And Jesus is saying it would be better if that happened than if you actually used your influence to lead people into sin. What Jesus is talking about is the people that we have influence over. He cares about them. So he wants you and I to be responsible for how we influence others. We don't live in a vacuum. You and I have a network of relationships, and all of those interconnected relationships have degrees of influence in them. I mean, yeah, it's very easy to see when someone older is influencing someone younger, but that's not the only actual pathway of influence. It is one among many. And so Jesus is calling you and me to take stock of who follows me. Who do I influence? Who listens to me? Is it your spouse? Probably so. Spouses influence spouses. Boyfriends influence girlfriends. Parents influence children. Children influence parents. Friends influence one another. Fraternity brothers influence fraternity brothers. And sorority sisters influence sorority sisters. Professors influence students. Administration influences professors. Professors influence administration. An employer influences his employees. Employees influence their employers. Every relationship that we have to some degree, most every relationship, has a degree of influence that comes with it. And we're being called by Jesus to take stock of that and to realize that my sin actually affects all of those relationships. If someone follows me, are they following me to Jesus? And the reality is oftentimes they're not, which is why actually voicing our repentance and showing our scars is a way that we show people, I'm not Jesus, but I know Jesus. Let me take you to him. We need to be men and women who long for others to know Jesus and long to deal with our sins so that we can get out of the way of them meeting Jesus. Is it dependent on us? No, but we have the opportunity to be a part of that process. And that's a responsibility, but also a privilege that's been given to us. And then we see in verses 49 through 50, Jesus transitioning, he starts talking about salt. Like when salt, when it loses its saltiness, how can it get its saltiness back and so on and so forth? And we're like, Jesus, what just happened here? Like we just, one thing I do know is if I cut off my hand, I don't want to put salt in it. That I do know for sure. So what are you saying? Jesus is now talking about the preserving nature of salt. He's talking about my people are to be in the world in such a way that they are preserving presence in the world. That you and I should actually be a blessing to everyone else in the world by virtue of us being in it. In other words, Jesus cares about lost people. And our lives affect how they see our Jesus. Again, it's not contingent on us, but how we live either is a preserving agent in this world and brings blessing to the world or not. And Jesus says, I want you to be a blessing to this world. And so if we're going to think about this just practically, we've got to consider the impact of our unaddressed sin on the lives of everyone else in our life. Like you and I, our unaddressed sin affects everyone in our life. There is no, there's no isolationist sort of approach that we can take when it comes to our sin. 
And so Jesus is calling you and me to see not only are there people that I influence, but there are people I'm supposed to reach, and all of that is affected if I don't deal with my sin. I will actually be the best positive influence I can be, and I will actually be the most engaged with my neighbors I can possibly be if I deal with my sin. So if you want to love your wife better or your husband better, then you need to deal with your sin. If you want to love your kids better, you need to deal with your sin. If you want a closer relationship with your grown children or with your parents as they age, you need to deal with your sin. If you actually want to be a better employer or employee, you have to deal with your sin. If you, if you want to love people in your neighborhood well, you have to deal with your sin. There is no pathway towards that because sin sidelines us every time. So if we're not actively killing sin, it is killing our influence and it's killing our relationships and it's killing our mission. We have to be killing sin. Jesus wants us free, and he wants to use his freed ones to impact lives in this world. So he calls us out of the enslavement and into freedom. So my encouragement for you, just by way of closing this morning, is to know that if Jesus is showing you something in your life that needs to be eradicated, it's going to hurt, and you're not going to want to do it, and you're going to be ashamed of the stump that's left afterwards. But we need to be a family that encourages one another and celebrates when we do the drastic work of following what Jesus says and experiencing the freedom on the other side. We should be a joyful, scarred-up group of people who know that sin, sin sold us a pack of lies, and Jesus has freed us. Father, thanks for this time we've had together. I pray that you will uh, use these word pictures of Jesus, these intense word pictures, uh, to remind us of just how serious our sin is, whether we acknowledge it or not. We pray that you will continue to be at work in our hearts and our minds so that we will begin to hate our sin more and more and more and more. That you will give us the desire, the passion to do the hard work of severing what needs to be severed, of killing what needs to be killed. Spirit, we need you to be at work in us. We pray that you will make us more and more like the one who has given himself for us and bears the scars of his sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for loving us. We celebrate you, and we look to you to help us. Help us this week to see our sin and to hate it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.